You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Great, I'd love to start with a question. My question is this, who do you think has given the greatest speech of all time? I bet many of you jumped straight to Nelson Mandela. I don't know if you've uh, read this speech or heard it, seen it on YouTube, the former president of South Africa, when he stood in court, says, I am prepared to die. This is before he went to prison. It was he believed in his cause. Maybe when I asked that question, you didn't go to Mandela, you jumped straight to Barack Obama. The former president of America, his acceptance speech in 2008, many have said was one of the great speeches of all time. But I'm guessing many of us in the room jumped straight to Martin Luther King the former civil rights leader and Baptist preacher who says, I have a dream. I'm going to suggest, humbly, I was going to say in my opinion, but I'm going to try and get the whole world on my side this morning. The greatest speech of all time is the Sermon on the Mount. Ah, And I've already got somebody from Gibraltar clapping me. (laughs) So that's two countries that agree with this. We're going to be looking at this over the next 12 weeks. I'm really excited about this. We've done 12 weeks uh, from January looking at gospel foundations in Genesis, big picture themes from the Bible. We looked at chapter 1 to 11 of Genesis. We're now going to spend 12 weeks looking at Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount. Discipleship. I believe this is the greatest speech of all time. It's in Matthew 5. If you've got a Bible, you might want to go there. Just to give a little bit of background, as I did for the other speeches as well, Jesus has begun to preach. Jesus has called his first disciples. Jesus has done an amazing ministry trip in Galilee. That was in Matthew chapter 4. Also, just to frame this, And look, please, I hope it's not too geeky, but some would say Matthew was written to the Jews in a Jewish way, i.e. there are five blocks of teaching in Matthew, and this is the first one. In fact, everyone ends as this one does. Uh, You can read it in Matthew 7, 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things. And so we've got to try and understand the book that we're about to jump into. I would suggest that each of these five passages of Jesus' teaching challenge us on discipleship. This one challenges us on kingdom life disciples. Will you be a radical disciple for Jesus? And that is Matthew 5 to 7. The next passage where it records Jesus preaching is Matthew 10, and it's, will you be a mission-driven disciple? Will you, in a hostile world, share something of Jesus? The next passage is in Matthew 13. Actually, there's something about the secret kingdom that advances. There's parables that Jesus gives about living in a world without the full power of God. Then in Matthew 18, where Jesus teaches again, we get community-based disciples. We are meant to have life as a community. We are part of the church. And then in Matthew 24 and 25, we get expectant waiting discipleship. Jesus is going to come back. Are you ready? So let's be really honest. This is what makes Matthew 28 so powerful. 
Because what does Jesus say? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of baptizing. Great. Another little plug. Two weeks time. We've got three people signed up. We'd love to have some more. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. This book is full of the teaching of Jesus. You get it in these five blocks. And he says, I want you to get it. Jesus, we want to hear your words. As we come to this greatest speech I believe has ever been given, this, this greatest sermon ever, some of us will know lots of it. Some of us will know none of it. We want to hear your voice. We want to hear your words. We want to be impacted by We want to be radical disciples for you. So would you please speak to us? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, great. I've asked you all to get your Bibles out. I'd like you just to um, look at the screen because I thought we could read it together. It's, it's, it's fine. You're allowed to read behind your mask. I'm not asking you to shout or sing, just to read. And if we can all read the same passage, that would be great. So these guys are going to bring up the words. Let's read with me. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him. And he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Wow. Familiar words may be new words. This was first called the Sermon on the Mount by Augustine. He was the Bishop of Africa, and that would be modern-day Algeria. There you go. I've got my third country that are now interested in this speech. He gave the sermon the title, the Sermon on the Mount, and we've been calling it that ever since. John Stott, he's an English theologian. There we go. Another one. Let's get him up there. The Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known part of the teaching of Jesus, though arguably it is the least understood and certainly it is the least obeyed. Oh, golly, I could sit down now. It's probably, couldn't I? You just think, oh, God, help me to understand it. Help me to obey. I would like to say the Sermon on the Mount is a kingdom manifesto. And if you're trying to understand, what's it like to be a disciple? You might be here this morning and you think, I'm not a follower of Jesus. What would it be like to be a follower of Jesus? 
I believe that this is what it is all about. You might say, well, actually, I, I do follow Jesus. I've prayed to Peter, I've been baptized. Well, how should my life be? I believe that this is Jesus' manifesto. It's the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that he uses the word disciple. A disciple is someone who's going to learn of him. Hey, if you call yourself a disciple, I'll be honest, I, I've got some other people that are going to be preaching throughout the series, and I sent them all out the titles, and I changed them all yesterday, and they probably haven't even picked up on it. Because I called it a Christian's mandate. And I just felt God really stir me when I was praying yesterday. It's a disciple. Have you just taken the title Christian, or are you going to be a radical disciple? And I think that's what Jesus is challenging us here. Michael Eaton, I knew he grew up in London, but actually he, he took on Kenyan citizenship. So I've got him on this one as well. He describes, he says, the Sermon on the Mount describes the kind of life a disciple is called to live. The kind of life. And so when we're, when we're jumping into this series, you think, is it relevant to me? Is what Jesus said 2,000 years ago relevant? He sat on this hill and he's got, yes, it is. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was Welsh. He said it is a perfect picture of life in the kingdom of God. D.A. Carson, his Canadian professor, said this, I am deeply convinced that the Church of Christ needs to study the Sermon on the Mount again and again. I want us to come with this expectation and excitement. Look, I know I'm getting excited and you're masked up. You know, if you're not holding on to your seat, you haven't understood how exciting this passage is. I honestly think that. There are clues that we miss. Up the mountain. Yeah, I mean, that was there right in the first introduction. There was a sense, wasn't there, that often things in Matthew occur up in the mountain. So if you were reading this, oh, it's up the mountain. Oh, the Jews would have thought it was up the mountain that Moses went. That's where we got the commandments from. Hey, come on, there's a sense of excitement before I've even got there. He sat down. I've said this before, we've got this all wrong. I should be sat down. I'm the one doing the work. You should be stood up. That's how it was. Why do you have a chair of a university? Because it was a recognition that someone has got some authority. Jesus was sat down. So when people read this, they thought, he sat down. He's going to say something really important. I read from the New International Version. The ESV version says this, and he opened his mouth. Even that was a description. He's opening his mouth. There is something powerful about to come out. So there should be this almost like drum roll. Whoa, what is going to happen? He's gone up this mountain. He's sat down. He's opening his mouth. RT France, he comes from Northern Ireland. FIFA used this flag, so I've got that one in. The Sermon on the Mount compels us in the first place to ask, who is he that utters these words? You see, they would have gone with a sense of excitement. Wow, who is this? The danger is that we could say, oh, it's, an, it's another Moses. It's another Moses because he went up the mountain. It's another Moses because there's some teaching from God. But actually, it's not another Moses. Moses went alone. Jesus took the crowd. 
Moses taught for the people. Jesus is teaching for disciples. Moses was about the law. Jesus is about grace. This is one much greater than Moses. This is the Messiah. That's what you've got to get to. So suddenly we now get to this thing that we're going to look at this morning, the Beatitudes. Look, some of us, if we're really honest, this, I, I'm just trying to think, I wish I could do a handstand and do the rest of the sermon on my hands. Because suddenly you think, what on earth is that idiot doing? You suddenly realise, oh, it's totally upside down. This manifesto is totally upside down. And we can read it out and think, oh, nice words, powerful words. If you look at the world's manifesto, no one says it's the poor that we're going for. No one says it's those that are mourning that we're going for. No one says, oh, come on, the manifesto is the persecuted. I was going to say, you know, look at the magazine rack, but obviously you've not been in shops for a while. Look at your social media profile. That's the manifesto of the world. The manifesto is the good-looking, the chiseled, those that look like they've just come out of a gym, although they've been closed for a whole season. Those that are famous. Those who've got a really fancy car. What Jesus is saying here is the Christian life is totally countercultural. You should stand out and be totally different. Some of you know that before I was a, a pastor, I'd have been a pastor 25 years this September. But before I did that, I used to be a primary school teacher. And the book that I loved the most in school was Where's Wally? I don't know if any of you have seen Where's Wally? It's this kid's book. Oh, look, we've even got one here this morning. It's fantastic. Well, I, I brought one as well so you can have a look. Where's Wally? It's page after page like this. And you have to search and search and think, where is Wally? He's hidden somewhere. And there's often a cat in there and there's a dog in there. And, and you've got to look for all these people and, and, and see if you can just spot a little bit so that you could possibly say, I've possibly found Wally on the page. And I'm going to challenge you and say, I think too many of us live our Christian life like, where's Wally? We've so blended into the crowd that people think, are they different? Is there something about them? Let, let me really squint. Let me look really, really closely. Maybe. Have I spotted? No, no. Is that a tail? I'm not sure. Whereas Jesus in his manifesto is saying, you've got to stand out and be radically different. This is a pocket guide to the kingdom of God. What our character duties attitude of being a radical disciple should look like. I've not put Fillmore up here because I've already done my English flag. But he said in his commentary, I saw in these Beatitudes a call to march to a different drum and to put down my false gods of popularity and to follow the real gods. That, I believe, is the challenge here. I want us to take some time to look at them. I don't want to dissect them too much. I would say that four of them seem Godward and four of them seem manward. Many commentators said they are easily memorized for maximum impact. I will get one more quote up. Donald Hagner, in his commentary, he had a Swedish father and a Polish mother. I should have put the European flag up for this one. The Beatitudes are a bold and daring affirmation of the supreme happiness of the recipient of the kingdom proclaimed by Jesus. 
He's saying you should be radically different. It should affect your heart because of the kingdom that is sent to you. So let's quickly jump through these Beatitudes together. The poor in spirit. That is those that are dependent upon God. They recognize their need of God like the prodigal son recognized his need to return to the father. They trust in him alone. It's like they're broken. How many in the world's manifestos? Oh, come on. If I was to stand up in the United Nations... Come on, I've got a manifesto. We're going to change the world. (laughs) Who are you looking for? Broken people. People that recognize their need of God. That's where Jesus starts. John Calvin, the French theologian, said, He only who is reduced to nothing in himself and relies on the mercy of God is poor in spirit. Oh, God. So I rely upon myself. Or am I poor in spirit? Those that mourn. Those that mourn are full of pain and grief. They regard it as the most unfortunate of people. There's a sense of loss and sorrow. The world wants to laugh. And yet he says those who mourn. Many say it was those that grieved over their own sin and also the sin of their nation. I guess David was an example of this in the Bible, wasn't he? Psalm 51, when he's taken another man's wife and then killed the man, he mourns and he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. You see, if we're going to be radical disciples of his, We've got to learn to mourn over our own sin. The meek. Oh, I just don't even want to say the word. Most of us, if we're really honest, think the weak, don't we? Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is having strength but choosing not to use it. It's an attitude that's not arrogant and oppressive. Let's be honest, so often in the world's manifesto, those that get on, those that demand things, those that come in with sort of power and presence. Whereas Jesus says, I'm looking for the meek. You could do something you choose not to. Psalm 37, the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Hunger and thirst. The the sense here is of intense longing In those days, let's be honest, you didn't have running water. In those days, you probably only had meat once a week. There was this sense of hungering and thirsting and desperate. I think, I'm not sure I really know what that is like. But Jesus is saying, if you're going to be a disciple, it's almost going to be, you're going to have a hunger and a thirst. It's going to, oh, I'm desperate for you, God. Psalm 42 says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with him? This is a radical disciple. Merciful. Not one that is measured, but one that is very good to be generous, to forgive. 
A person who sees the approach of someone else, who understands the attitude and point of view of another. Let's be honest, so often in our world, the manifesto is, you do you. You be you. Let other people suck that up. Jesus comes and says, will you be merciful? Will you think about the other? I don't know if I've told you this. When I was at uh, university, it was an, in a London university, and it was all about equal rights. One time I opened this door for a girl that was coming through the other way, and she just looked at me and said, you sexist pig. I thought, I was just trying to be merciful. Was that really necessary? I'm not sure I should have pushed her back through the door and said, okay, open it yourself. We'll cut that one out later, obviously, I'm sure. You see, mercy doesn't come often when we feel trodden on. But a radical disciples are going to be merciful. In James 2, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God is looking for a merciful people. He's looking for people that are pure in heart. Oh, as I've meditated upon these this week, I think my heart is such a murky place. Even when I'm doing the right actions, what's inside my heart? Pure in heart means no mixed motives. Sincere and honest, full of integrity. The psalmist says, teach me your ways, Lord, that I may rely on your faithfulness. Give me an undivided heart. That's radical discipleship. Yeah, it's like, what's going on underneath? Peacemaker. Not a peacekeeper, a peacemaker. You see, the devil is a divider and a troublemaker. But a peacemaker builds bridges where others want to build walls. Oh, let's be honest, it's so easy, even passive-aggressive, isn't it? I, I just build a wall. You know, I'm not sure I want to talk to you about that. Well, it's actually a radical disciple, one who wants to make peace. He wants to connect, go that extra mile. Let's resolve it in a mature way. James again says, Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, I would like to say there was only seven Beatitudes, but there is an eighth. The reality is the eighth one is not necessarily in your attitude. It's how people treat you. The persecuted. Look, this is not you because you're an idiot. It's you because you follow Jesus. And sometimes, if we're honest, we're persecuted because we just do some stupid things. We don't know a lot about this in this country. Having said that, I found it fascinating this week that the leader of the Labour Party has to apologise that he's gone to a church. In the name of inclusion, he excludes believers. Surely that's an example of persecution. We will be persecuted. Radical disciples, we will be different. We're not in the where's Wally picture. Timothy says, everyone who wants to live a godly life, 2 Timothy 3.12, in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. 
I read this commentary by Brian Whittle this week. He said, rejection is the one way to test. The one way to test we are truly living as Jesus did. And if I'm really honest, I think, I want to be accepted. I want everyone to think, oh, Pete, he's a good guy. This guy says, rejection is the one way to test if you're really a disciple of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another nation. I told you, they all think this sermon is the most powerful speech. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. That's radical discipleship. Now, the honest truth is Jesus didn't just teach this because we can all talk a good game. Jesus fulfilled this. You see, I would like to suggest that, that this whole start to the, the Sermon on the Mount that we're going to look at was actually a fulfillment of this is the Messiah that's coming. Some of us here do a, a Bible reading program called Community Bible Reading. You read one chapter. We're going through Isaiah. Isaiah 61 we did this week. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance to all who mourn. We know, don't we, that in, is it Luke 4, when Jesus started his ministry, he read those words in the synagogue and then said, today this has been fulfilled in your midst. So almost this teaching was a fulfilment of the Messiah that they were looking for. But Jesus didn't just say it. He lived it. Jesus cared for the poor in spirit. That's why he stopped and invited Zacchaeus to come out of the tree. That's why he allowed the woman who was rejected to pour perfume on his feet. That's why Jesus said, let the children come to me, although the disciples now get them away. Jesus cared for the poor in spirit. Jesus cared for those who mourned. The leper that other people would say, get away. The woman that had been bleeding for 12 years that comes up to him and touches him on the back of her, he, the crowd. Jesus takes time for those that have mourned. How often is it a funeral? Raising the dead because Jesus cared for those that mourned. Jesus modelled meekness. He rode a donkey into Jerusalem. Ultimate power but suppressed it for the people. Jesus wanted to feed those that hunger and thirst. The woman at the well that's got these questions. Nicodemus, the guy who comes at night. Jesus takes time. Jesus often describes about the merciful, doesn't he? He tells the, the, the story of the good Samaritan. This guy who stops and helps. He tells the story of the prodigal father that shows mercy to a son who told him he wished he was dead. He tells the parable, doesn't he? Look, you've been forgiven so much, forgive. Jesus is merciful. Jesus challenged people's hearts. Hey, you're like tombs with dead bones inside. You're like a cup that's never been cleaned on the inside. Jesus was a peacemaker. At Easter, we remember the story, don't we? You know, the, the guards are coming for Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Suddenly the disciples are panicking. What does Peter do? 
Yeah, he's a man's man, isn't he? Grabs the sword, whips off somebody's ear. Touch my Lord and I'll have you. Is my translation of it. I've never written the rest of the book. Jesus says, Peter, put down your sword. And heals him, doesn't he? Jesus is the peacemaker. Jesus is the one who's ultimately persecuted. As we remembered on Good Friday, died on a cross. Although he was perfect, although they put the inscription, King of the Jews, he was persecuted for my sin. The Sermon on the Mount, I tell you, I think we are in for a really exciting ride. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he's been up once, I've not got a slide. He says this, we are not meant to control our Christianity. Our Christianity is meant to control us. That's radical discipleship, and that's what we're going to look at in this thing. Our danger is we want to control Christianity. How does it impact us? Michael Wilkins, American, got another one up. The Beatitudes are neither a means of entering nor advancing the kingdom. They are expressions of spirit-produced kingdom life, revealing to the entire world that a transformation of creation is beginning in Jesus' disciples. That's why we're blessed. He's saying, oh, come on, why are you blessed? Because actually God's spirit transforms you and the world is going to see that. Today I'm calling you to be a disciple. It said at the beginning, didn't it, the crowds followed him because he'd done miracles. And then Jesus says, right, this is kingdom discipleship. If you're a disciple... And I'm just going to tell you the second half of every beatitude. If you're a disciple, you will inherit the kingdom of heaven. If you're a disciple, you will be comforted. If you're a disciple, you will inherit the earth. If you're a disciple, you will be filled. If you're a disciple, you will be shown mercy. If you're a disciple, you will see God. If you're a disciple, you will be called a son of God. If you're a disciple, you will inherit the kingdom. I love the fact that there are radical disciples in this church. I love the fact that since COVID, we have given more financially in the last year than the previous one. Because people are saying, I'm a disciple for God. I love the fact that we had 80 people sign up to pray and fast in Lent. I love that. I love the fact that more signed up for meetups last term, and I'm trusting you will today. Because you think, I want to be connected. I want to be involved. I still think this is challenging us. Oh, could we go further? Could we see the kingdom manifested in our life and impact those around us? That is my prayer as we start for this 12 weeks looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Make sure you're here next week for part two.